I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The 21st Century Cures Act, an ambitious piece of legislation of great concern to the rare disease community, passed the House last year only to stall in the Senate. Now it's back on the radar. The legislation is moving forward again, but this time in pieces. Separately in California, proposed legislation can greatly accelerate the process that tests are added to the list of newborn screening diagnostics that are performed. We spoke to Max Bronstein, Senior Director of Public and Government Relations for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, about the developments on the legislative front, what the outlook is, and why these issues matter to the rare disease community. Max, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. There have been some meaningful developments on the legislative front, both at the national level and in California. I'm hoping today you can bring us up to date and explain the significance of those developments. Let's start with the 21st Centuries Act. There was a lot of hope in the rare disease community that this would pass last year. It did pass in the House, but stalled in the Senate. This is a a large bill affecting a lot more than just rare disease issues. But perhaps you can begin by reminding listener about what the bill would do. Sure thing. So the 21st Century Cures Act, as you mentioned, did actually pass the House last summer. And we're at this this point where the Senate is basically playing catch-up right now. Um, What was included in in the House version of the bill were a variety of provisions of importance for the rare disease community. Uh, There is new funding for NIH, for FDA, and the order of billions. Um, There was the Open Act, which is a piece of legislation that encourages uh, companies to repurpose therapies for rare diseases. So that that was included. We think that that bill could actually double the number of rare disease treatments. So very excited about that. Um, the Neurological Disease Surveillance Act was included in there. That's something that would uh, basically help track neurological diseases through the Centers for Disease Control. Um, the Cure Act was in there. This is something that would require companies to actually develop a some kind of policy around providing expanded access to patients among uh, a lot of other provisions, including one that um, was actually just included in the Senate version. This is called the um, Patients First Impact Assessment Act. So there's there's a lot of provisions in the House side. What we're waiting now on, on the Senate side is, is basically to see what, what they're going to do uh, to pass the companion piece of legislation. So the, the Senate has taken a, a very different approach to what the House did. The House basically passed um, four, well, introduced four bills or draft pieces of legislation that were discussed, and they ultimately passed one sort of omnibus bill last summer. What the Senate has decided to do instead is take more of uh, a piecemeal approach and consider all of the individual bills on, on a sort of one-off basis. So the Senate has already held, the Senate Health Committee has already held uh, two markups of, of those bills, and they've um, voted on and passed what they have considered to be many of the uh, so-called uncontroversial bills. So we're, we're still waiting to see what the, the Senate will do on April 6th, which is when the, the next uh, markup is scheduled to be held. The, the Senate has actually passed 
the Advancing Hope Act, which is the program at FDA for Priority Review Vouchers program. So those have, have already passed that committee. Um, the, the Patient Focused Impact Assessment Act was, was also passed through the committee. Uh, we are still waiting to hear about what the, the outcome will be for the open act on the Senate side. Within the context of, of the issues of concern to the rare disease community, two parts, the, the 21st Century Act, the, the open act and the Patient Focused Impact Assessment Act, which you just mentioned, were not among the bills advanced. Can, can you dive down a little deeper into those and why those matter? Sure thing. Happy to do that. So um, some good news on, on the, the Patient Focused Impact Assessment Act. Um, those, that bill would basically require the FDA to be more transparent about how patients are engaged in the, the drug review process at FDA. So the, the FDA is required to use patient input, but this would actually require the agency to use um, a checklist showing how patients were engaged uh, in, in the review and approval process if the therapy ends up getting approved. Um, and then that actually becomes a public document once the, the review has already occurred. So we, we view it as an important way to, to bring transparency and help ensure that the patient voice is actually included in the, the drug approval and, and review process. So this, this bill was not scheduled to be heard as, as of a few weeks ago. It was not scheduled to be heard and we actually had um, a very large lobby day on Capitol Hill during Rare Disease Week on Capitol Hill. We were brought over 200 patient advocates to the Hill and among other things, they asked for this bill to be included. Um, and uh, the day that we held this, that we started holding the uh, Hill meetings, the Senate actually announced that it would be there during the markup and was actually passed unanimously by the Senate Health Committee. So good news for the Patient Focused Impact Assessment Act. Um, the patient advocates who are, who are on the Hill during Rare Disease Week uh, also asked for the, the open act to be included, and, and that's what we're still waiting to see um, what the Senate will do. This is a, a bill that creates an incentive for companies to, to repurpose therapies for rare diseases, and we think this is so important because, as, as you know, and as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, off-label usage is very common in the rare disease community, but one of the challenges with, with off-label uses is that those those therapies are often not well-tested in, in the rare disease uh, population that, that, that it's being administered to, so we don't have good data around the, the effectiveness side of, of those um, medications. And in addition to that, uh, because the therapy is off-label, it's typically much harder to get them reimbursed. So that's two of the challenges that come with off-label use. We think that the Open Act, by providing this incentive, would actually create um, much stronger sort of clinical data set to know whether these therapies are actually working. And then once we can get the, the rare disease vacation on the label, um, it, that will require companies, insurance companies, to actually reimburse for them. So um, just in summation on, on Open Act, we, we think it's something that could actually double the number of therapies available to rare disease patients. And, and that's why we're so hopeful that the Senate will, will do the right thing here and ultimately decide to consider this legislation during the final April 6 uh, markup. Dr drug makers don't generally explore potential rare disease applications of their drugs that are already approved. Why, why is that? So basically, um, from the drugs that are on, already on the market for a common disease, adding a rare disease to the label is, is something that's typically not going to make a big impact on the bottom line. 
So if you think about many of the rare diseases, and especially if this is true for the ultra-rare diseases, um, you know, you're talking about, in some cases, hundreds of patients. So there's little incentive for a company to, to run a, a whole new clinical trial to see if a therapy works in such a small patient population. Um, and so what, what this bill would do would actually sort of level the, the playing field a bit and, and give companies that, that same incentive because that incentive, that extension of exclusivity would apply both to the, the rare disease indication and, and the sort of common disease indication as well. So it actually doesn't matter how rare your disease is, that, that company would still get that incentive. So it would uh, be a way of, of sort of bringing uh, rare, ultra-rare diseases onto the same um, playing field as, as some of the more common diseases. And, and why is repurposing drugs an attractive strategy for expanding treatments for rare diseases? We, we think it's the most cost-efficient and fastest way to get new therapies to patients. And, and that's because you're already talking about a drug that's already gone through the full R&D cycle. It's already been marketed. It's already um, available to patients. So we typically have very good data out there about um, safety and, and effectiveness for the common indication. What, what we don't know is that the big question mark is really about how, how this would um, help patients with rare diseases. But we really view this as the fastest way to get these treatments to patients because you're not starting from scratch. You don't have to start from scratch and develop a whole new molecule or a whole new biologic. It's something that, that we can take that already has um, actually pretty robust clinical data around it. You just need to do a, a bit more on, on the research side to know whether it will work for, for patients. And, and the other important thing to point out about the open access, um, in order for these clinical studies to be done to know whether it would work for, for a rare disease population, it would uh, requires these biotech companies who have expertise in, in repurposing to actually make grants um, to academic research centers and, and other places that run clinical trials. So not only do we see this as something that would be tremendously helpful to rare patients, but it would actually be quite a, a boon to the sort of repurposing side of, of the biotech industry in terms of providing new funding for, for research. So what's the holdup? Are there objections that haven't allowed this bill to move forward? in the Senate, um, and, and there's a couple reasons for that. One um, is there's concern about exclusivity, and, and we think a lot of this is related to what's been very heated discussions about pricing. This, this bill has absolutely nothing to do with pricing. It's actually, the uh, we would actually think of it as the sort of low-cost orphan drug act, and that um, drugs that would be repurposed would actually come to market uh, at the same price as the, the sort of common indication. So it wouldn't be um, a, a totally new drug. It would just be a drug on the market, same, same drug, just for a different indication. So the, the price would be the same as what, what the sort of drug that's already on the market. So there's there's concern about pricing there, even though this, as I said, is, is not a, a, a pricing um, issue. And, and I think a lot of this is just being driven by, by all of the, the controversies that um, sort of going on politically right now. And, and it's quite unfortunate, uh, the timing of, of all of this, because this is a bill that really could, could help millions of rare disease patients. So it's unfortunate to see politics getting in the way here. Um, none, nonetheless, I should add that, like in the House, um, the, the champions for, for the OPEN Act are, are bipartisan. We have Senators Hatch and Senator Klobuchar, who introduced the bill in the Senate. So there is 
very much bipartisan support for it, but it is definitely being caught up in, in a lot of the um, political concern that's going on around pricing at the moment. So separately in California, Senator Richard Pan, who is a doctor, introduced SB 1095, a, a bill to expand California's newborn screening program. There, there's a process in place right now that people might find a bit straight. Can, can you explain what the recommended uniform screening panel is and how new tests make their way onto it? Sure, happy to provide some, some insight there. So um, basically in, in the United States, uh, we take a, a kind of a, a very strange approach to, to newborn screening. We um, allow each state in the U.S. to make its own decisions about which diseases to screen for. Uh, and, and the outcome of this is that every state in the country is screening for different diseases. There's a lot of overlap, but there are also many diseases that have basically fallen through the cracks of the public health system. So um, that's, that's the, the sort of status quo right now in, in the U.S. And the reason this is so problematic is because um, for, for patients, especially newborns who are able to be diagnosed and therefore treated at the earliest stage possible, um, this, this can have a dramatic impact on the health outcome for, for a child. So um, in, in an ideal world, you want to, if you're going to have a, a, a rare, devastating disease and there's a treatment out there, you would like for them to be diagnosed and receiving treatment as early as possible because that will hopefully enable for them to develop in, in the most normal and sort of healthy way possible. But um, that's not what's happening right now in the United States. And that's because each state gets to make its own decisions about which diseases to screen for. Um, and, and what's happening at the federal level, and, and this has been going on for years, is that there's actually um, a well-respected and well-designed scientific body that actually makes decisions and recommendations about which diseases they believe states should screen for. The, the key here is that these are just recommendations. Uh, states are not required to follow that guidance, although states do look to the, the, um, the Secretary's Advisory Committee, which generates something called the RUSP, the Recommended Uniform Screening Panel. This is a list of diseases that they believe um, states should be screened for across the country. So the way that those um, recommendations, they, sometimes they get translated to the states, and, and many times they don't actually make it to the states. And, um, even when they, when those recommendations do get to the states, it can actually take years for the states to start screening for those diseases, even once they are recommended by the panel. So, the, and a lot of this delay is actually caused by the need for states to have to introduce legislation every single time they want to add a disease to to the screening panel for the state. So, so, is, so the Department of Health and Human Services make a recommendation. What does it take for a state like California to then? add that test to their newborn screening list? Right. So in, in California, and um, this is true for, for most states, is they actually have to introduce a bill that has to go through the full legislative process before the state can actually start screening for, for that disease. Uh, and the reason this is, is problematic is, as folks know, uh, the legislative process by its nature is very uncertain, um, and it can be quite time-consuming. So that, and, and the outcome there is that, you know, you can have many uh, diseases where you have a screen that we know works and have a, a treatment that um, can already exist, but they are, are not screening for them. 
really is a tragedy for for the children who are going to be affected by those diseases and certainly for the families who are going to have to shoulder the burden of what could potentially be a lifetime of disease and disability. So as an example here in uh, California, there are um, a wide variety of diseases that are listed on the RUSP already, including two diseases that are not being screened for here in California, one of which is called MPS1 and, and the other is Pompeii disease, both of which are devastating rare diseases. But for both of these diseases, we actually have screens that cost about $1 to $2 to add to the, the screening panel, and we have treatments that have existed for years. So it's, it's quite frustrating to well, say not only not only their treatments, but early treatment is critical in preventing the disease from from doing harm long term. That's right. So getting getting children on treatment as as early as possible can just make a huge difference in terms of their their long term health outcome and um, their their ability to sort of lead a, a the healthiest life possible. So that's basically what what the challenge is, and, and so what we've um, decided to do here in California is work with Dr. Richard Pan, who's a pediatrician and very highly respected um, member of, of the California Assembly. And basically what, what our legislation would do was would require the state to actually screen for all of the diseases that are listed on the RUSP. And the nice thing is, is assuming our bill passes, as soon as uh, a disease is recommended on the RUSP, it would require the state to screen for it. So it would eliminate this legislative delay and it would el eliminate this gap that often exists between what the, the experts are recommending at the federal level and, and what the states are actually screening for. So we, we see this as a way of sort of streamlining that whole process, speeding it up and, and ensuring that patients are ultimately getting access to therapies at the earliest stage possible. And, and, and there's both a, a human case, but, but an economic case as well to make for newborn screening. What, what is it? That's right. So in, in California, um, we save roughly $10 for every dollar spent on newborn screening. Um, and if you look at certain diseases, you can actually avert many of the sort of downstream expensive medical costs by getting them on treatment as early as possible. So there, there are examples of uh, MPS patients who, when they get on therapy at a very young age, it helps enable uh, normal bone development, which averts many of the expensive hospitalizations and surgeries that would otherwise be required to um, sort of repair repair their bones. So. Um, by providing the enzyme replacement therapy at, at the earliest possible age, you can really, you know, ensure that this, this kid has the best shot at, at living a healthy life. And ultimately, you'd save the state a lot of money, too, because it would avoid so many of the costs that, that come with having to treat a, a rare disease. What's the path forward for the legislation? So we're, we're looking at a, a timeline of, of hopefully having the bills heard um, starting this spring and we expect that they'll go through the, the committee process um, uh, starting the spring, as I mentioned, and we are hopeful that we can have um, a uh, actual witnesses testify so that we can have the, the California legislator hear from parents, from doctors, uh, and then ideally we'd, we'd like for the, the bill to actually get signed into law by the, by the fall so that can actually see them uh, implemented early next year and, and actually start screening for, for Pompeii and for MPS-1 here in California.
California. Anything else on the legislative front you're watching right now? Um, those are the, the sort of main bills that we're watching develop um, in terms of the, the federal level um, going forward, assuming that the Open Act can be heard and assuming that the Health Committee wraps out its, its work. Um, we would then expect all of those bills to come to the floor in some type of package that would um, sort of mirror, ideally mirror, what was done in the House, and those bills would, would be have to be conferenced and then ultimately go to the, the president's desk for, for signature. So we're hoping that will, will happen um, shortly after the, the April hearing so that we can get all of these bills signed into law and, and ultimately make sure that rare disease patient's voice was included in the, the 21st century cures process. And for listeners who want to follow legislative developments, you can sign up for the Rare Disease Legislative Advocates updates by looking for the Stay Informed box on the website at rareadvocates.org. Max Bronstein, Senior Director of Public and Government Relations for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. Max, thanks as always. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>